Welcome back to Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, thanks so much for listening in. And if you're coming back after listening before, thanks to you as well for joining us again this week. First things first, let's get the boring stuff out of the way again. So if you want to download us, rate us, review us, subscribe to us, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also join the conversation on Twitter at IBL Podcast or me personally at AMB Hack. Really, really interesting show for you this week. We're going to be starting things off by talking to What's On reporter Robin Murray, who is compiling a list of the biggest Bristol legends that we all know, we all love. He's going to be putting that together in an article, so we're going to talk about his work covering that. Now, we all know about the number of protests that happen in Bristol. It seems to be one a week at least. Here at Bristol Live, we cover a lot of them, probably most of them, I would say. But they do present a really interesting and quite a difficult challenge for reporters. So we're going to be talking to content editor Brianna Millett about how she tries to juggle those concerns, things that she tries to keep an eye out for when covering protests and the things that are important to bear in mind. We're going to look at a few recent examples, including the pro-Palestine march this week and also a recent far-right march that happened in the city centre. Another chat we're going to be having this week is with reporter Alex Wood. Now, Alex has been putting a lot of his time into coverage of the bear pit. It's been a really controversial story to look at what have the problems been for the businesses there and what's going to happen next. So we're going to talk to him about his coverage, but also find out what the future is for the bear pit. So let's just jump straight into our first conversation with What's On reporter Robin Murray. We're going to be talking about the heroes that make Bristol. So, Robin, we could have done a podcast with you about a number of things. I know you get really wound up about people talking at gigs. That's something that we could look at in the future. I do. Also, a big meme fan, I understand as well. Yeah, yeah, I feel like my meme game is uh, improving day by day, thanks to your, uh, your close leadership. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. trying to step that up here at Bristol Life. Um, but what we're actually here to talk about is the legends of Bristol, basically, isn't it? Which are, are they the, just the people that out and about in the street, you're going to recognise, everyone knows them but we just want to speak to them, basically. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we all know that Bristol's filled with hilarious characters everywhere we look. There are loads of people out there who go out of their way to try and make the lives of other people much better, um, even if it's just, you know, a small thing. It's one of it's those people I'm trying to highlight who do that kind of work in the community and largely go unnoticed. That's kind of what prompted this uh, this feature. So what does it involve? What are your plans for, for the legends of Bristol? So I've already spoken to three people who I who I deem to be kind of legends of Bristol, heroes, community legends, however you want to label them. The first was a man named Naren Wilkes. He is a man who runs a free silent disco every week down at the Harbourside. He gets no money from it whatsoever. He literally turns up with his makeshift silent disco set and yeah, lets people have a good time. He just, he gets enjoyment from seeing other people have fun. On a slight side note, is that the one that was a bit controversial recently with a bloke from a hotel. Was that the same one? Oh no, that was that was, that oh, was, that different, was that a different yeah, silent yeah. disco. So there's more than one silent disco that happened. Uh, yeah, this, that was just a one-off for um, spot relief. Whereas this is a, a regular weekly kind of free rave, essentially, and it's it's brilliant fun for people who live down in Bedminster who walk into town. It's a great way to start the evening off, and it's completely free of charge. So if you're ever in Bedminster, well, on the harbour side, I should say, on a Friday or Saturday evening. Whack on a pair of headphones and uh, yeah, listen to some weird psytrance. So who else have you been speaking to then for this? So the second person I spoke to was a man called Darren Jones. Again, very familiar with people in BS3 because he's run a fruit and vegetable down there for around, I think it's 24 years, which is impressive in its own right. But what really makes him stand out is the the chants he sings to bring custom in. So um, he's got a very distinct nasal voice, as again, people in that area will know. I caught him doing these chants one day when I was walking through Bedminster on a Saturday afternoon and 
said, would you, like, would you like to have a chat with me? And he was more than up for it. So I filmed him doing his, uh, his chants. And yeah, people in the community seem to think that he's a bit of a hero as well. Just to clarify, that's not Darren Jones, the MP. There's, there's, <laughs> there's no mistaken identity no, there. Exactly, yeah. But just to clarify, it's, it's not the MP. Although maybe the MP does uh, sing himself. We'll have to yeah, we should, we should have a sing-off between the two Darren Joneses that we've got. Oh, uh, definitely. Got one for Esme to organise, I feel, yeah. <laughs> and who was the third person you've spoken to then? Third was Jeffrey Knight, more commonly known as Jeff, the big issue seller, who I'm pretty sure most people in the city will be aware of. He took a bit of tracking down, actually. He's quite an elusive character. I tried to find him in the past for stories as well, actually. Yeah, I find him quite tricky to yeah, find. Yeah, yeah, because um, obviously, you know, big issue sellers, they, they sort of work when they when, when it suits them, really. So I went to Stokescroft early on Monday morning, I think it was. Uh, there was no sign of Jeff, so I left my number with a few businesses in Stokescroft. Did the same thing on Tuesday. Again, he wasn't there, but I got back to the office. And as soon as I got back to the office, a very kind lady from... Hamilton House gave me a bell to say that he was there and willing for a chat. So I had a chat with him yesterday and that interview will be going up online today, I believe. He yeah. ran for mayor of Bristol recently, didn't he, as well? Oh, did he actually? Yeah, I think he ran for mayor, Big Jeff, because that was what I was trying to find him for as well, to talk oh, about. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wasn't aware so of that. Yeah, but, um, he's done plenty. Oh, excellent. Well, he's not to be confused with the other famous Jeff of Bristol, of course, who is another one I'm trying to uh, have a chat with. For those unfamiliar with that Jeff, he is um, Bristol's biggest gig Goer, I would say. He, if you go to gigs in Bristol, you know him. You'll recognise his his hair. Uh, he's usually at the front, absolutely going for it. And he is um, he's a complete legend. He knows everything there is to know about Bristol's music scene. Jeff, if you're listening, I'd love to have a chat. So, so he's going to be included in the uh, in the list, then, is he? I thoroughly hope so. Yeah, because he's such a nice bloke, and um, you know he he's done a lot of work for charities and stuff. And I just love talking to him about music. He's definitely one I've 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 eyed up, so to speak. So where did the idea come from? As I touched on earlier, it's just a case of highlighting those people who we all kind of know, or lots of us know, they just go out of their way to make other people happy, really. And I thought that they deserve a bit of bit of exposure in Bristol Live. So, of course, Naren was the first one. As a result of that, I think um, our editor, Luke, has set up a, a Facebook group in which we're going to post all these articles so that other people can hopefully engage with those people. And if there are any other people out there who people think should be, um, you know, highlighted in, in Bristol Live, I'd love to hear their suggestions because, you know, there are so many of them, many of whom I'm sure we're not aware of even exist. So if you're listening, please give me your suggestions. So how does it, how does it play out? How, do you, how does it sort of come together? Is it, a, so it's individual articles with an interview with each of these people that sort of tied together by this theme, you know, that, you're, that you've got overarching it basically. How do you track them down? How do you decide who to choose? Um, I guess a few of them are just um, people I, I happen to walk past, such as Darren, the, the East Street fruit and veg man. I just saw him and I thought his, his chants were hilarious and he was very unique the way he, he delivered them. I think Big Jeff, sorry, Jeff, I should say, the big issue seller, is one that was suggested. I sent an email around to the whole office and I think five people suggested I talk to him and he turned out to be an absolute legend. It was really good talking to him, actually. I've never seen him before. And Naren was, again, just one I've, I've you know, joined in with that silent disco a few times with my mates and I thought, you know, what an amazing thing to do. So, yeah, I think it's just word of mouth is the main driver, really. And then just trying to track them down wherever possible. So are you taking recommendations from the public, from our listeners and readers then? Oh, definitely, yeah. I'm sure there are, as I said, I'm sure there are loads out there who um, we're not even familiar with. More than happy to um, hear your suggestions. And I guess the best way to do that is to email me, which is robin.murray at reachplc.com. We can also include a way to get in touch with you in this week's show notes as well. So make sure that people come forward with their suggestions for you. Excellent. Yeah, sounds good. So who's next on the list then? Who else have you got lined up? That's a very good question. There's a man who goes by the name of Brian Chick, 
you'll probably hear him before you see him because he's the man who rides around Bristol, mainly BS3. As you can tell, I'm from Bevanster, which is why a lot of these are Bevanster focused. Yeah, he, he cycles around mainly Bevanster, blasting out music, usually singing along. And again, someone who goes out of their way to give people free music, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So Brian, if you're listening, please get in touch. I'd love to have a chat with you. After that, I guess there's, as I mentioned, Big, um, big Jeff, the music lover. Yeah, a few others in the pipeline. It's just a case of tracking them down. And So what have you been asking them then? When you've been sort of tracking them down and having a chat, what sort of questions do you do you take to them? Because obviously I suppose they're also different and unique, aren't they? Yeah, I guess it depends who they are really. But the usual ones are, so why do you do what you do? What is it that makes you happy about what you do? Do you have any plans to continue it, to keep going? Luckily so far, the, the three answers have been yes. Even Darren, who's been going for 25 years. Just finding out a bit more about them really, about their story, how people react to them, everything that builds up a nice picture of what they do. Have you enjoyed putting it together then? I have actually, yeah. It's, it's, it makes a nice change to go out in the community and, and talk to people, which is kind of the reason I became a journalist in the first place. So yeah, to have that opportunity and to kind of highlight the work of people around Bristol who I deem to be, you know, legends, so to speak, is really fun actually. And again, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more suggestions and getting to know them. What are their reactions as well? You know, it's a bit weird for someone from a newspaper to come up to you sort of out of the blue and say, you're a bit of a legend. Can we yeah. do an article on you? I mean, has, have they been a bit surprised or are they sort of a bit more, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I'm a legend, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've actually all taken it really um, on board, I think. You know, them sharing it on their social media channels and stuff like that. You know, not in the case of, of Jeff, because he, he's obviously not not on Facebook or whatever. But I kind of, as I spoke, as I spoke to him and told him how much of a legend he is, in the words of other people, I could see it kind of put a spring back in his step. Not that it really needs it because, you know, he's always on top form. But yeah, I'd say they've reacted to it really well. I think the main one for me actually was Naren, the, the silent disco man, because he's quite new and he's never had any publicity before, whereas the other two have had little bits along the way. So he was actually quite surprised when I got hold of him and said, I'd love to do a feature. Yeah, so it's a nice feeling. Robin, thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of your articles. Thank you very much. Cheers. Great stuff from Robin there. Personally, I think it's a really interesting idea to try and find and speak to the Bristol legends. Let's go straight into our next conversation with reporter Alex Wood, who has been writing about the problems with the bear pit. My name is Alex Wood, and I'm a news reporter here at Bristol Life. Are you not going by Xander or Woody now? I understand you've been given new nicknames recently. <laughs> no, I um, we did talk about this as a, a possibility when we had our second email change and I'm now an Alexander and I did wonder if with two of us in the room although there were two Alexes whether we could draw a distinction and I could be an Alexander but I don't think I'm going to be able to pull it off you would think that it would be quite easy to get us to not get us mixed up because we both got quite different surnames you know I don't think we look hugely alike I mean we're both blonde but I suppose that's probably that's about as far as it is you've got a quite an impressive beard and I've got a very pathetic one so I don't really understand how people have confused us so regularly but it, it happens a lot it does happen a lot Alex W Alex B the other Alex second Alex Alex 1 Alex 2 Alex, Alex, yeah it yeah, happens all the time but Alexander's not going to stick I don't think <laughs> so we are here to talk about uh, <laughs> the bear pit this week which has been a saga that continues to roll on. It's been quite controversial and it's been quite heated at some points because people are quite passionate about this, which is quite a strange thing to say about a roundabout, essentially, isn't it? So talk us through what the initial problem was. Like, where did this all start? Yeah, um, well, the Bear Pits had a long checkered history, which predates even me being in Bristol and even my coverage of it. Because, yeah, I mean, I've only been really involved in the Bear Pit coverage probably since the start of the year which isn't all that long when you consider how long it's been there 
and what's what's predated that. So the Bear Pits history, it does have a bit of a bad stereotype or a bad name attached to it. And so, I mean, my involvement really kickstarted with this bad name and the issues actually that the traders were having on their day-to-day basis on the job with sort of antisocial behaviour. For some of the traders, they were experiencing some abuse. There are instances where there are rough sleepers who are in the bear pit. There is evidence of drug abuse taking place there. And just generally, it's become quite a toxic place, is how it was described, from those who are working there. And also for the people that actually use it as a walkway, because that is, as you said, it's a roundabout. You've got cars going around it, smack bang in the middle of Bristol City Centre every day and you've got pedestrians probably just trying to get from A to B or on their commute and the traders are there trying to sell snacks and coffees and just trying to make a living and it's become this kind of place that for whatever reason it's just not worked it seems like there is a there's something in the pipeline to resolve that so I always remember growing up that the the bear pit was basically as you described it it was a bit of a sketchy area but there was nothing there which made it worse I think was it people were reluctant to go through it because it's basically a subway, isn't it? You know, it's a subway that yeah. goes under the roundabout and it's not nice being in a city centre subway anywhere, really, you know, anywhere in the country. And so there was there was nothing else there. I think the council must have attempted to improve it. Is that what happened? And then installed these businesses, gave them some space to try and bring the area up, get more people there. And then if you have more people there, then it's a nicer area. Was that the sort of gist of what they were trying yeah, to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've been talking with various organisations that have had some sort of involvement with the Bear Pit uh, over the past few months with different types of stories from the traders to MPs to the police to the council. And that's also kind of been the Bear Pit's downfall, I think, in some regard, because there are so many different interested parties. Some of them have different views and visions for the space. And that has caused, I think, a bit of conflict somewhere along the way. But the Bear Pit, Bristol Community Interest Company, they've been there for about seven years they're the traders and they have always maintained this belief that by bringing people together for a love of food, using the space for activities, physical exercise, they can, I suppose, improve its image, improve its safety and make it a place that you and I or any other person would want to spend some time without that fear of some sort of, you know, drug abuse being taking place in the background or anyone shouting abuse at you and all these, you know, nightmare scenarios we hear about the bear pit. It was always their vision originally that, you know, they could improve it through this love of food and using the space for, you know, to implement positive change. So the businesses have have been forced out effectively is what they're saying by the antisocial behaviour they've had to leave. Is that the case? Yeah, that was, so that was sort of January, February time. They issued this kind of cry for help plea for help, which they've actually done before. Before I came to Bristol, I think it was about two years ago, might have been a little bit longer than that. And the traders were saying, look, we need more help. We need the council, we need the police to step up and tackle this issue head on. And I think it kind of was addressed to a certain extent a couple of years back. But whatever's been kind of bubbling away under the surface kind of reared its head again over Christmas. And I know the traders said they really struggled and they issued this cry for help the start of the year that's what we covered they were saying that we need that support crime levels were soaring I think one of the traders Miriam I hope she doesn't mind me relaying this but in our reports she was quite strong in her quotes and she I think she described the bear pit as sort of a lawless no man's land it's kind of this vacant space or seen as this vacant space she was trying to issue this plea for help and our coverage has what we thought would help support them and I think it did to an extent but then ultimately they pulled out and that's where we are now. 
So those businesses have had a problem with the council and the police not reacting then. Is that the case? They've been asking for help and they've not been helping out, basically. Yeah, it seems like that. Um, I think the council and the police have done their best to help support the traders. They, they, there's only so much, I suppose, the police can, you know, so much resource that they can invest in the bear pit. You know, we're talking about low-level crime, by and large. I mean, there are some nasty incidents that I know have taken place there. By and large, it's low-level crime that I don't think it's fair to suggest the police don't always do enough because they've got resources that they need to commit probably elsewhere. But that doesn't, you know, don't negate what the traders have to live with on a daily basis. You know, this is their livelihoods. These are their jobs. And coming into work every day and seeing graffiti over your shutters or, you know, your windows have been smashed, that's not a pleasant experience. And they shouldn't be subjected to that. Um, you know, and that's where I suppose they felt probably let down by the authorities. Um, I suppose they feel... Like it was, it was mutually beneficial as well when these businesses came in. You know, the council and the police were intending to improve the bear pit. I suppose these businesses were like, yeah, we get to set up a business, but also if we set up businesses here, we'll help make this a nicer area as well. But that hasn't been the case by the scenes of it for the businesses. They feel like they've taken the brunt of the responsibility. I, I think so. Um, reading between the lines, and that's my impression of it, certainly. And like I said, there's there's been this issue of other parties sort of around the bear pit or have been involved in the bear pit or one way or another. And I think minority, you know, there's always the vocal minorities who can express their own views. And I think everyone having these kind of different views of what the bear pit should be and, and what space we, you know, what we should be doing with that space hasn't necessarily helped. I think it's confused matters. People have different agendas for that space. And I think the fact that we have so many options on the table being shouted about on Facebook and Twitter and social media hasn't necessarily helped bring about a sort of single vision to resolve these problems. So other businesses intending to come back? Yes. Um, so kind of the big story today for us. That I dragged um, you away from. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> so the big story for today for us is that the traders are going public with a vision that they've been, I think, working on for, you know, well, at least in the time that they've been away and probably longer. It involves a new name. It involves a new look. And it involves some significant investment, which we can reveal today. The traders, Bear Pit Bristol, want to rebrand the Bear Pit or St. James Barton Roundabout as The Circle. So a new name, it's a new concept. Some of the images for those plans, the artist's impressions, they're all available to view on our website as of this morning. And they're impressive. It's building, I think, on what the traders have always wanted to do with the space. But finally, having, I think, a few months away, they've been able to really take it on, take some stock of where they are and actually have come back with this bold vision, which hopefully, or they're hoping certainly, will be the catalyst for this new future for the Bear Pit. So it would be called The Circle then, change the name from The Bear Pit. They've come back with artists' impressions of what they want it to look like. And this is this is a redevelopment or sort of, you know, renovation being led by the traders then, is it? More so than the council or any of the other groups. Is it mostly the traders that are pushing for this? Yeah, absolutely. So this is concept put forward by Bristol Bear Pit Community Interest Company. I mean, they, I imagine they've had input from individuals outside of, of, of their group, but it's it's been put forward by them. It's kind of building on what the work that they have done with the council and other bodies in recent years, you know, successful initiatives that they want to bring forward and they want to expand upon. And it's really exciting. I mean, it's it's in its infancy. We have to stress at that stage that this is day one, I think, of a project that's going to take maybe in a couple of years to fully materialise. But it's really exciting. And, you know, I got that impression from my conversations with them this week, uh, just how proud they are 
putting this forwards. They think, you know, this is going to be the start of something new for the Bear Pit. Obviously, that remains to be seen, whether this new vision is actually going to resolve the problems we've been talking about. It's it's difficult to say just yet, but certainly it looks like from someone from the outside looking in, this can't be a bad thing for this space. So what's the next step then? So they've released these plans, they've released their vision. What do they need to do now? Do they need to take it to the council? That probably will be, um, yeah, it's not yet at the planning application stage. Um, so essentially what they're doing today is going public with it for the first time. And what they want to do is hear from you and I and anyone else, our readers, members of the public, commuters, Anyone with a, an interest in the bear pit or its future, they want to hear from you and they want to hear your thoughts, whether that's, you know, this looks great or whether it looks absolutely shocking or whether you want to fill the space in. They want to hear from as wide sort of range of people as possible over the next three months. So they're going to be having this three-month consultation that starts officially in June. Three months for you and I to share those thoughts, make those comments. They'll take stock of the consultation they'll start work on this pre-application to the council. Uh, obviously, what comes out of the consultation might impact the final designs if you know people hate the name or if they, they've got valid suggestions to make that are slightly different. They'll probably take those on board before putting in uh, a final application to the council. So it's a change of name then. And yeah. it, there's a new design. What do you think are the big differences? Because assume, assuming that the businesses want to make a big change to make this place better so they can operate there, people can enjoy it more. What are the major changes between the current bear pit that we've got and this new vision that they've released? Yeah, so, I mean, the changes, again, it's, it's important to stress, um, may change depending on the consultation. And they're also, the part of the plan that um, I've been reading this morning is, you know, it's about being implemented in stages. It's not going to be like one full swoop move it's gonna come through in different elements so you won't see one day our bear pit now and then this vision implemented in a matter of days it's gonna take a bit of time but it's essentially i'm looking at their press release here uh, you know it's talking about modernizing it's about you know a pioneering collaboration project it's bringing together multiple businesses i think it's 40 altogether 40 odd businesses bringing them together in this sort of urban food space and sort of bringing together all of the initiatives that they wanted to bring to the space but haven't been able to for one reason or another. And I think, again, they, they talk about somewhere in, the, in here about the different opinions that have existed for the Bear Pit in the past, which hasn't necessarily been the most helpful. It's kind of pulled people in different places. This is about having a single hope, a single idea. And it's an emphasis, as I say, on bringing food growing food as well as eating it, uh, cafes and snacks, um, like urban farming, essentially, and as well as learning, bringing the universities and schools, uh, meeting rooms, conference rooms, uh, sort of a learning aspect, uh, as well as uh, growing your own food and everything else, and being sort of yeah environmentally friendly and resourceful, uh, and just basically everything that they wanted it to be over the past few months and years, and actually realising it. Sounds expensive. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, I think that's fair to say. Uh, we're talking uh, £3.5 million. Pounds, roundabout. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah, £3.5 million pound renovation of a roundabout. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to come cheap. And I think they're realistic about that. They, they obviously can't uh, reveal too much about where they're at with the funding element because there's, there's various grants in process and applications being made. But, you know, they are quietly confident, I think, that this is a realistic target. It's a big number, but 
like I say, they're already in conversations with uh, investors, social investors. They're putting in or they're intending to put applications in for social grants. And of course, as part of the consultation, they'll be, you know, I suppose appealing for fundraisers and investors who might want to get involved in this project. They estimate once the project is fully complete and the renovation and the businesses all, you know, have all moved in, they reckon it could in rev- revenue make up to about £2 million uh, with everyone combined. You know, so it, it, you know, they are confident with these plans that this could be a really successful project for the city. So we've talked about the project, we've talked about the businesses, we've talked about the council. One of the things that it seems worth mentioning is the people that are there, you know, the people that we've previously spoken about, the there are, you know, there's rough sleepers in the area. There's also been, you know, talk of drug abuse and things like that. What happens to them? Have there been questions about, you know, the usual stories of gentrification and just moving people on and not really solving the problem? Has that been raised at all by anyone? It has. It's actually been raised by, you know, the people who are putting this project forward. You know, they're very much aware, I think, of that suggestion because that was kind of borne out in some of our coverage earlier this year. There was a suggestion that the traders were not welcoming the people who actually use the space. And I'm not just talking about the commuters that walk through, but the individuals who have been known to sometimes sleep rough in the bear pit because, you know, quite frankly, they don't have anywhere else to go. And this was at least some space. Relatively sheltered, quiet, I suppose. yeah. Yeah, which maybe isn't, you know, the safest place for them to be, but it was a space that they could congregate and they could sleep without too much disturbance. And it was suggested by some readers, by some other factions in the city, that the traders were not welcoming enough that section of, you know, bear pit users. And they themselves have acknowledged that in terms of trying to dismiss the suggestion, because, you know, from their point of view, that's not a fair accusation to make. You know, they have tried over the months, over the years, to engage with everyone that uses the bear pit. For whatever reason they're there in the first place, they've tried to engage with them. But the suggestion has been otherwise. So they've talked about, they've actually raised that question in their press release. You know, they actually asked the question, what will happen to the homeless community in the bear pit? And as part of their answer, they've actually referred, they've been, they've been having a conversation with a chap called David Ingerslev of uh, Bristol Homeless Charity St. Mungo's. They quote him. And um, I mean, I can, I can sort of relay his, his thoughts here. But basically, he's, he's saying that the bear pit has a small number of rough sleepers. And it's not considered a major rough sleeping spot. That's the first distinction that he makes. You know, it's not as big an issue. There are other places that, according to these guys, that homeless people will go to stay. But they do acknowledge there are ongoing issues with alcohol, uh, with drugs, antisocial behaviour. And obviously people do sometimes assume that those problems are conducted by the homeless. And that's not always the case. So the circle, they say, the whole design seeks to address those issues. It talks about how the goal is to stop crime, to stop antisocial behaviour, and continue to have a public space which can be used by everybody. And they say if the project is successful, everyone in theory, including the homeless community, should feel welcome here. You know, they've stressed this this concept of it being all-inclusive, they want the space to be, you know, used by everybody. So they've made that quite clear that anyone who might be in the space right now for whatever reason, there's no reason why that cannot continue. There's no there's no sense of anyone going in and being pushed out or forced out. That's just not going to happen. Because there, uh, there is a flip side, of course, to this human aspect. There's two human aspects, I suppose. There is this side, which is, you know, the antisocial behaviour, the rough sleepers, things like that. But then also there are the people that have to walk through it for work. You know, it's on their, it's on their commute. I mean, I've been through there before and I've sort of walked into the toilet 
saw a group of guys stood in the corner and have just turned around and walked straight back out. You know, just left straight away. And a few years ago, I remember I was walking through, someone just came up to me and just offered me drugs. I'm not going to read any anything into why he came picked me up to offer me drugs, but <laughs> um, there is a human aspect to, to that side as well. You know, the people that, that just make use of it passing through, I suppose. Yeah, ultimately, you know, it's it's got to be a safe space. Like you say, it's a subway, essentially. It's a roundabout, an inner city roundabout. That There's a group here that are trying to make it you know, a creative space that various organisations can use. You know, this is their money, this is their time, this is their resource. They shouldn't be subjected to some of the things that they were earlier this year. You know, no one deserves to be, whether it's their place of work or whether they're just passing through, you don't deserve to necessarily be subjected to abuse or whatever else it is that happens in the bear pit. And I think that harks back to this this image that it's kind of attracted over the years this image of it being this lawless no man's land. Here we have this concept and that's all it is at this stage. But here we do have a concept, the beginning of something that could be, you know, something where we can hold the bear pit up and actually be proud of as a city. You know, at the moment, a lot of people, I won't say about embarrassed by the bear pit, but it's not somewhere that most people want to go to for various reasons. And I think here we have something really exciting, something that, you know, if people back and support could be the start something really exciting for the city thank you very much alex excited to see what happens with the bear pit next thank you that's really interesting from alex there thanks to him for talking to us about the problems with the bear pit but also looking at some of the ways that people are trying to solve those problems as well so it'd be interesting to see what happens next now into our final conversation with content editor brianna millet now it's a little bit tense because she's my boss so i've got to be on my best behavior so let's talk to her about how we cover protests My name is Brianna and I am one of our digital content editors. So, Bri, you are my boss. We have, what, how many do we have? Four content editors, is it? Yeah. And I want to ask the serious questions on this show. So who is your favourite reporter at Bristol Live? Oh, you, hands down. The, hands good, down. Fantastic answer. We will accept that. Thank you very much. All the others are going to like egg me now. <laughs> they will not be on this show again, I think. <laughs> um, so first things first, what does your job involve? So my job varies day to day. Mostly it involves kind of working with reporters on developing their stories and asking them what they're working on day to day, helping them kind of progress with that and then looking through the stories themselves, editing them, checking them through, making sure they're kind of giving all the information out so people aren't left with questions at the end of them, checking them for legal bits and bobs and managing the website really managing how much content we have going up at any certain time and little bits of social media and that sort of thing journalism job titles seem to change so regularly oh, they? They everyone's do, yeah. got like digital or something or executive yeah. in their name now so i can never keep up with what anyone's doing no. based on their job title i feel like the longer the job title the less you do <laughs> <laughs> this week we are going to be talking about protests now i covered a protest this week i was at a pro-palestine solidarity march in the center of bristol but also recently we worked together on quite a controversial one i would say it took a lot of it took a lot of negotiating there were a few twists and turns in it that were quite tricky to cover and that was the far right gaze against sharia march that took place in the center of bristol wasn't it and you were on duty that weekend weren't you you were sort of in charge of the website that weekend i was indeed what were your thoughts when we heard about this protest i think my first thoughts were it's going to be a busy weekend Because the last time they'd come, it obviously all kicked off a lot with the kind of Antifa movement protesting the protest, as it were. The police were very concerned that it might kick off. They had a huge 
presence in the city centre. So obviously we listened to them. And yeah, my first thoughts were just kind of what we need to do, who we need to have on the ground covering it, what we need back in the office, making sure that we're feeding things into the website and making things clear for anyone who's wondering what's going on in the city centre. As I mentioned, it's quite a tricky one to cover because covering marches like this, they're a far right organisation. They've got ties to far right groups as well. They deny that. So we have to make a decision on what we call them, basically, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. But then also we have to decide how much we're going to publish because with controversial organisations like this, sometimes it's not wise to give them the platform, is there? Was that something that you had to consider? Yeah, I mean, you have to give people a platform to an extent. You can't just ignore that things like that are happening. You can't ignore that people have certain views. We live in an open society where people are entitled to their opinions and we have to allow that to happen. But at the same time, we can't provide a platform for people to spread hate and to spread very difficult views, I'll say. We have to look at how we present things like that. And if we go around interviewing a dozen people who have these extreme views and putting that all over our website it gives a warped perception perhaps of how many people actually think that way and might agree with them and we don't want it to seem like there's more support for that way of thinking than there actually is. So we have to consider how many people are at this protest I suppose yeah, as well. Yeah definitely. Because there's so many protests in Bristol how do you decide which ones take priority? Do you think? I think there's lots of factors, isn't there? I mean, it obviously depends what the issue is, how much it's affecting the world, how much it's affecting people in Bristol, how many people care enough about it to go and protest. We also look at how to cover protests in terms of how it's going to affect people that aren't interested in the issue at all. There might be a massive protest through the city centre that's going to affect a lot of people at 5pm on a Thursday afternoon when they're trying to get home. So from our point of view, we're covering it from that angle as well. I don't know if it's whether we kind of have a list of, oh, this protest is important, this one's not. It's just kind of a give and take and assess the situation when new protests come to us, I think. So we take it, take each one on its merits yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose every week we get different groups coming to us and say, we're doing this protest, we've got this demonstration, can you cover it? And we do have to pick and choose because we don't have the resources, I suppose, to cover every single one. No, if we covered every single protest in Bristol, we'd need five reporters just doing that every day. I mean, there's a protest or someone doing something everywhere in Bristol at some stage, which is great because it shows that lots of people are passionate about lots of different things in Bristol. But again, it's it's not feasible for us to (laughs) cover every single one. So with this far-right march that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, you were in the office and had to manage quite a few people running around on the ground. How did you find it trying to balance, you know? Uh, Do you know what? It was interesting that it was a a weekend as well because we obviously have less staff on a weekend than we normally would on a weekday. So it was interesting. I think it worked really well the way we did it because we had Bron, who was at Police HQ working with them. So she was kind of listening into their feed of what they were spotting on CCTV, what their officers were being told on the ground. And that made it a lot easier for us, really, to kind of have one ear on that. Then we had you, obviously, on the ground at the march, kind of trying to go between the two different camps. We also had a photographer on the ground taking pictures. But I think our communication worked really well. (laughs) Like, we set up a little kind of group to just chat live on the day. Um, We had a live blog running, which I was feeding into Bron was feeding into and you were doing kind of live stuff on Facebook and social media as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's difficult to manage, but I think once you've seen something like that happen, 
before and how it's been like dealt with in the newsroom, it's quite easy to kind of replicate. What do you think about Facebook Lives as well? Because whenever there's a protest, it's kind of one of the best ways of getting people interested in these things, I think, is by doing a Facebook Live, isn't it? It's by broadcasting the event. Plus, they're quite, some of them are quite spectacular. The pro-Palestine one that I was at this week, the views of the protesters with the Will's Memorial building in the background, it was quite, it was visually something to look at. So even if a wider audience aren't necessarily interested in the cause, it's quite a good way of presenting the story. Yeah, definitely. And I think our job is to get news to people. I think, Obviously, sometimes we get lost in the tradition of we need people to read the paper, we need people to look on our website. But actually the issue is just letting people know that these things are happening and and Facebook is a new way to do that. It's a new audience, it's a different way of reaching people. And I think sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, like everything. I think protest is a case where Facebook Live can work really well. Like you say, you just get that visual impact and you've got someone talking it through with you, which... You know, a lot of people won't want to sit down and read a 500 word article on a protest because they don't find it interesting. But you can sum that up in a minute of talking. And that's a valuable way to kind of get something across. They do present their own problems, though, I suppose. as well. I've always find them. Yes, they do, especially on protests. Yeah, absolutely. I've always found them really tricky um, because for a start, you've got a you're there. It's your own face. You know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't trained as a broadcast journalist or anything like that. So they're quite hard work in that sense to, to talk for that long and to come up with new things to say and get things right. But also they can be a problem because they're live and people can just come and grab you and say whatever they want. And there's something to keep an eye on, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's like being on live TV, isn't it? Everyone's seen like bloopers of newsreels gone really wrong. And we had to call the Facebook live short in the March the other week, didn't we? Because someone kind of interrupted and they were just chatting to the camera. And he was, and he you was have kind to of heckling take... one of our other reporters yeah. and it just seemed unfair to, to keep broadcasting. Really, you have yeah. to take a decision where you're like, actually, no, I'm going to pull the cord on this. But yeah, of course it presents its own challenges. And I think, especially for the reporters here, you're all print journalists, but more and more you're being asked to do more and more non-print things. You're, we're doing a podcast right now. Like things are At changing. Least it's not going out live, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm very glad it's not going out live. But yeah, I think I think most of you guys are really good at just kind of handling it and trying it. And I think people also appreciate that we're trying new stuff like that. Obviously, we get comments to the opposite of that. Some of we're the always going to get that. Always get on my nerves when you know there's quite a serious protest going on, and you can you can find it frustrating that people are blocking the roads. That's fine, you know. Yeah. But it's the people that sort of just really unconstructively just say. You know, oh, you're a snowflake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always find that really frustrating. It's just not engaging with the, the topic at all, is it? And no. It, it tends to be that one person will say it and then everyone will try and make this, yeah, a different definitely. variation on the same joke, which just always gets on my nerves. Yeah. I think also like it is so easy if you're sat at home on your computer to kind of criticise stuff like that, isn't it? But look, these people care and they're out doing something about an issue they care about trying to get change to happen. Do you find as well when you're reading through a story or you're sort of sending a report right to a protest that it can be quite difficult to give both sides because a lot of the times a protest, one side are protesting against something, but then there's going to be another argument in support of that. Perfect yeah. example was um, the Palestine-Israel um, protest earlier this week. Do you have to give consideration to to both sides? Yeah, definitely. We always give consideration to both sides. We have to try and be as fair as possible obviously in an article that is about a protest about one thing it's going to probably fall on the side of the protesters but we have to make sure that we're including the opposite side of the argument in that whether we make an effort to go and speak to someone who's got an opposing view or whether we do a whole another story kind of explaining the history of it and explaining the two different sides 
And I think generally we're quite good at doing that. Do you think they're an important thing to cover as well? Because, I mean, some people might argue that there's it's a small group of people that are protesting against something. But do you think there's, there's worth in covering them? I, I Yeah, I 100% think it is, even if it's a small group of people going to protest. Because I think on issues there will be people who care just as much who aren't protesting. Because some people it's just not in their nature to go out and shout about things. People have busy lives more and more. Like if you're at home with kids or you're working late all these things might stop you from going. It doesn't mean that these people don't care about these causes. And I think in some ways we're lucky that few people are willing to kind of put themselves out there and spare their time for issues. I mean, that's how big movements start, isn't it? They start small and and get bigger. Bristol has had some big protests as well. And I think, especially when you look at some national issues that kind of come back to Bristol like austerity march or women's marches those are things where yeah you might not get as many people turning up in Bristol as London but they're still important they're still important to cover I think from our point of view covering them I would agree with that because I think it's really interesting that there is a way of finding a national or international topic but there's local news happening in relation to it you know where it shows that people in Bristol do care and we're telling people in Bristol that some people in Bristol do care about these international and national things as well yeah definitely and just because you live in Bristol I mean some people probably are in a little Bristol bubble but most people aren't you care about international and national issues they affect your life just because we are a Bristol newspaper doesn't mean we should ignore things that aren't only about Bristol we shouldn't ignore things that kind of our national issues just because they're not focused around Bristol. Brie, thank you very much. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brianna there. It's an interesting insight into how we cover protests, but also some of the difficulties that we face as well when trying to give both sides of one argument. So it's quite an interesting conversation to have there. Right, that brings this week's show to an end. Really hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next Friday with a new episode to take you behind the headlines. Now, don't forget you can rate, review, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, join the conversation on Twitter at IBL Podcast or me personally at AMB Hack. We've been produced by Matt Aldis every week he does a brilliant job thanks to him we will see you next week goodbye